Well, again, welcome this morning. I'm so glad that you're here, as cold as it is, and with a terrible uh, football game yesterday, I'm just glad you got out of bed. So thanks for joining us. Church is more fun with other people. So uh, glad you're here. My name's Nathan. I'm the campus pastor. It's good to be together. Let me, uh, let me pray for us, and we'll, we'll jump in uh, to Jesus' words for us this morning. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that you have called us uh, to yourself. Um, God, and we're thankful that you have revealed yourself to us both uh, through your word, um, written down for us so long ago, as well as through your son, our Savior. God, I, I pray that we would, we would hear from both uh, this morning. God, that you would um, shake us out of our stupor where we need that. God, would you uh, comfort us where we need assurance, but also, God, would you convict us where we need challenge? We trust you for these things, Lord Jesus. Amen. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, do, you ever, do you ever wonder, like, how much of your life is actually spent in pursuit of happiness? What do you think, like, maybe 98, 99%? Actually, there's one philosopher, a guy named uh, Pascal. He lived uh, in the 1600s. He actually makes a case that it's it's 100%. It is everything in all. Uh, Listen to what he says. Uh, He says, all men or women seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man. Are you following that? So according to Pascal, everything you ever do is because you think somehow it's going to make you happy. And so, uh, for example, if you uh, give yourself every pleasure, it's because you think it's going to make you happy. If you deny yourself every pleasure, it's because ultimately you think it's going to make you happy. If you overwork uh, or if you're lazy, right, it's ultimately because you think it's going to make you happy. We all want the same thing, we just have no idea how to get there. Because honestly, I, I, can, I can tell you from my own experience, you know, when I, when I was a kid, I thought, you know, candy and toys, that was it, that would make me happy, right? That was the thing. If I could just get more of that, then I'd be okay. You know, when I was a teenager, I thought a little freedom, a car, maybe a girl, um, that would make me happy. Um, I was wrong again. Uh, when, I started, when I started work, you know, it's, well, maybe money and, and success and, and approval of others, maybe those things will, will, will do it. Now, now that I have a, a family, right, and kids, it's, it's them and living through them. Um, at every stage, I've thought for sure I know what's going to make me happy, but at every stage, I've, I've been left wanting more. I mean, what's, what's next? Like, retirement? I mean, geez, I'm 36, okay? And we all know what comes after that. We all want to be happy. And some have actually defined the essence of pride at its very core as the belief that we can figure out what's going to make us happy on our own. Which is interesting, isn't it? I mean, that's essentially what Adam and Eve did. And really, if you think about it, it's probably like, at least maybe, the only value left in American culture, isn't it? Do whatever makes you happy. It's the one thing we all go back to, isn't it? Well, what if I don't know anymore what exactly is going to make me happy? Because I've tried a lot of things, and I'm always left wanting more. And as, as you'd expect, Jesus has a thing or two to say about this. 
But I have to warn you, it's the exact opposite of everything we would normally think. According to Jesus, the happiest life is the upside-down life. It, it's, I mean, he, he takes all the things that we think are right and good and normal, right, and actually worth living for, and he flips them all upside-down. I mean, in fact, I, I read one of these statements. I'll, I'll read them all in just a moment. But I read one of them to my son, David. He's eight uh, this past week, just to kind of see what, he, see what he'd think. And um, his response immediately, without any hesitation, is, Dad, why would anybody believe that that's true? And he was like, well, I know Jesus said it, right, because he, know, he knows I'm a pastor and all that kind of thing. Um, but that, I mean, that was his, his unblushing response. Is how on earth, because Jesus' words here, they are completely counterintuitive. Uh, they, they are awkward. Uh, and downright hard. That's why we're calling this section of Matthew the upside-down kingdom. And, and this morning, we launched into this long section of teaching of, of Jesus's. It's, it's his most famous sermon. It's also one of the most uh, famous pieces of religious literature in all of history. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We'll spend several weeks going through this, this old, old sermon together. And it begins with this section, this little preamble or introduction that Jesus has uh, that's often been referred to as the Beatitudes. It simply comes from the, the Latin word uh, beatus, which just means blessed or happy. It's, it's from the, in the original language, right? It's, it's the word translated in our Bibles there, if you have it open, as, as blessed or blessed or, or favored or, or even, even happiness. But not, not happiness as like a, a fleeting feeling, but happiness as indicative of the good life, the best life, of a satisfaction that actually lasts, even through thick and thin. And so you've got to picture Jesus. Okay, we've been with him these last couple months in these early stories in Matthew. And his, his fame is at an all-time high, okay? I mean, he's been healing and teaching and recruiting, and everybody at this point loves them some Jesus. I mean, he, he's on the top of his game, and I mean, people are just, they're just flocking to him like, like crazy. And so the crowds are there, and the disciples are there, and it's, I mean, it's time for Jesus to sign a book deal, right? It's time for him to appear on, on Jimmy Fallon. Um, but instead, he preaches this sermon. So why don't, why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? We often stand when we read the whole passage together. Uh, let's, let's, let's do that. Our, our scripture is Matthew 5, 1 through 12. I'll read a couple verses before that just to give us the context here. But as I read, listen for the upside-down nature, the unexpected, the radical in these words. So backing up a little bit, Matthew tells us, So Jesus' fame spread throughout all Syria, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And then chapter 5, where we're at this morning, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and when you read the word blessed or hear the word blessed, think happy, okay? Here's what he said. Blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed or happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you 
When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. All right, so happiest are those guys. That makes a lot of sense, right? Them, seriously? They're the happy ones? I told you it's upside down. But, but maybe, right, just maybe there's something to this strange brand of happiness Jesus is offering. But first, we will go through each of those kind of eight categories of blessedness or happiness, okay? Before we do that, though, just a, quick, a few quick clarifications, because there's a lot of debate on how exactly these words, and even this whole sermon is to be interpreted and, and lived out uh, today. So let me mention just a couple, a couple of key things for us to keep in mind as we go through this. Um, and really for the whole Sermon on the Mount, uh, first off, is that Matthew and Luke, they both record much of these teachings, but they do so a little bit differently. Uh, and this shouldn't be, I don't think, a concern for us. I mean, imagine it like this. If you and I were both there sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his sermon, uh, feverishly taking notes, we're both going to write down different things, right? I mean, it's, it would be similar, uh, but different things are going to hit me or come across to me than they are to you, and you're going to write down other things and, and all of that. And that's essentially what we have with the gospel writers. They're not, they, they don't write down the exact same things, and that's, that's okay. And in fact, most scholars would say that Jesus probably preached these things over and over again throughout his time in Galilee. It wasn't like a one and done, like one chance to record it all kind of thing, a sermon. Um, and also, the, the gospel writer is not intending to, to write out like a word-for-word transcript, but really just the, the main ideas. I mean, most would believe that th- this Sermon on the Mount, it takes about maybe 30 minutes to read it, um, is probably a couple days' worth of teaching that Jesus um, teaches to, to those, those around him. Does that make sense? Okay. So it's not, it's not meant to be uh, exhaustive in these, in these things. Also important, and this is particular when it comes to the, the Beatitudes, these blessed statements, is that these, these aren't commands. Okay? Jesus isn't saying you got to do this. Um, nor are they a series of if-then statements, like if you do this, then, then you'll be happy, then you'll be blessed. That's not, that's not what's happening here. Rather, Jesus is describing the kinds of people who are blessed, who tend to be happiest in his in-breaking kingdom. I mean, Jesus is bringing with him a new, a new kingdom, and this is, this is part of it breaking in. It's a, a kingdom that, that has arrived but isn't fully there yet. And this means that as we read these things, there's going to be a lot of tension in these words. Right? They're not a bunch of like, neat and tidy guarantees for us. There's tension here. Even so, there are lessons to be learned. The happiest life is the upside-down life. All right, so let's go, let's go through these together. First, First, we've got the poor in spirit. Essentially, happiest, happiest are the people who need something. That's, that's really what it is. Who, who understand, particularly their, their spiritual poverty, how morally bankrupt they are. It's, it's the people that, that have tried to make themselves happy, have, have done everything they can, and have finally given up. Have finally stopped trying to be their own savior. This is why we'll see Jesus targets prostitutes and sinners. He goes after the poor and oppressed, the outcasts. It's because they're, they're already halfway there. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, why? Why them? Why are they happy? Well, for Jesus, it's because they have no place else to turn. They're just, they're out of options. I mean, meanwhile, though, what do we say? 
What are our values? Man, blessed are the self-sufficient, right? Blessed are the people who can take care of themselves. Uh, blessed, blessed are the ones who can at least maintain appearances. Blessed is the person who lives in Johnson County. And the reality is if you, if you think you need nothing, Jesus really isn't for you. And that's going to be a problem when his kingdom comes. But good news, if your life is a mess and you know it, anybody, right? Some of you absolutely. Or some of you, I've, I've heard some of your stories. You, you feel this. If your life is a mess and you know it, and you see Jesus' kingdom breaking in, and you know that that kingdom is for you, and you know that in that kingdom, he's going to take even the most ugly parts of your story, the most shattered pieces, and put them back together and make something beautiful. And you know that that's happening for you. Happy are you. Because you ache for it. You see it off in the horizon, and you long for it. And you have, you have no choice left but to trust in him. What Jesus is saying is the happy life is the needy life. It's also the mourners. Happiest are the sad, the depressed. Those who experience the brokenness of this world and weep over it. Who, who understand the pain of their own mistakes. I think that's part of what Jesus is saying here, but also understand the pain of the mistakes of others that have been placed on you. Who have lost someone close to them or, or have had something taken pre- precious from them. And don't hide from the agony of it, but feel it in all its terrible weight. Have you seen the movie Inside Out? I kind of love this movie. I'm not going to lie to you. It's, it's, it's sort of awesome. If you haven't seen it, you probably need to. Um, it's really so good. And if you don't know the story, um, which means I guess if you, don't, if you don't have kids closely connected in your life, you probably don't know the story. Um, if that's you, it's, it's essentially these emotions personified in, in the life of young Riley. She's the main character. And all throughout, there's this, this ongoing battle, this animosity between joy and sadness, which just makes sense, right? Because we hate sadness, right? All of us, right? Sadness, in our lives, we see sadness as the enemy, right? We, we want nothing to do with it. Even if it means just like, just keep smiling, right? Pretend everything's okay. Uh, your problems aren't that bad. Your mistakes aren't that bad. The world isn't that bad. You know, if we can just be complacently oblivious, right? Um, and superficially morose, right? Uh, then, then, then we're fine. That, that's, that's sort of how we, right? I mean, that's kind of how we do, right? Um, just keep smiling. But towards, towards the end of this movie, you know, it keeps, keeps building and things get harder and harder and more and more difficult. Sadness finally takes over. It's seen at the end and uh, Riley and her parents, they begin to see together the, the, just the brokenness, the way things ought, ought not to be in their situation and they weep together, they mourn together. But with it comes comfort. I mean, it's the turning point of the whole movie. It's perfect, it's beautiful and if you've seen it, this is the part where you're like weeping along with them. Um, I'll admit it. Um, I'm a sap when it comes to these kind of things. Um, but the sadness is what, is what begins to lead to this process of joy. And I know, I know it's just a silly movie, okay? And I, I realize your, your grief is nowhere, anywhere near so simple. And some of you, I've heard your stories, some of you are drowning in your own tears. But your day will come. 
you will be comforted. Blessed, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, how? I mean, how could, how could God possibly give, give comfort in grief so intense? Well, in his kingdom, it's not just your parents holding you like Riley, right, trying to bring comfort. It's in his kingdom, it's the God of the universe. Jesus himself promises to wipe every tear from your eyes. All of them. And he's not powerless like our parents are, right, or the people around us who long to bring us comfort. That in his kingdom, he actually promises to turn our tears into laughter, to actually truly make it right, to comfort and to bring wholeness. And some of you, you're screaming for it, begging for it. Jesus is saying, happiest are those whose hearts are raw. Because you can't wait for a better day. Also the meek. We really value meekness in our culture, don't we? Just watch the presidential debates. The meek, the gentle, it's, it's the ones who refuse to assert their own power, who relinquish their rights, who, who lack pretension. It's, essentially, it's those who see the bigness of God and trust him to, to do whatever needs to be, to be done. But for us, right, we, we value, we idolize the ambitious, the powerful, the loud, the manipulative, those who get their way, um, but Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. A better, better translation there is probably they shall inherit the land, as in the promised land. It kind of makes it a little bit clearer, right? Because you see this, the ridiculousness of the meek. You think it's, it's the powerful, it's those with an army. Those are the ones who are going to take back the land, who are going to get what's coming to them. But Jesus says, no, it's, it's actually not them. It's, it's the meek. Not the weak or the spineless, it's not what ha- what's happening here. Sometimes we think that, right? But that's not who Jesus is, and that's certainly not, not what he taught. Rather, it's those who acknowledge that God is the one who will make it right, not them. And why are they happy? Because they know he's going to build a kingdom for them. And they, they trust that he's actually going to do a better job at it than they would. What Jesus is saying is, is happy... Happy are those whose gods are bigger, whose God is bigger than they are. Because they have someone to go to, someone to trust, someone to rely on. Happiest also are the hungry. The hungry for righteousness. That word there, it means both personal righteousness as well as justice for the disenfranchised. It's, it's that longing for, for right relationship with God, for, for things to be restored, made whole. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, I gotta tell you, I'm hungry for a lot of things. And I have all kinds of desires that beg to be satisfied. All kinds. I mean, you do too, right? Constantly, all over the place, right? And the reality is, if you, if you hunger for money, you're never, you're never gonna have enough. If it's sex, it'll, it'll never... It'll never actually fulfill you. Even if it's like love and relationship, eventually it's going to disappoint. If it's family, they're going to grow up and leave. If it's, if it's your health, it's eventually going to fail you, right? If it's success, if it's beauty, all, nothing, nothing quenches. It's like sitting in a life raft, you know, in the middle, in the middle of the ocean, surrounded by salt water, and you're thirsty. Man, you're so thirsty, and your lips are chapped, and you're just 
all you can think about is water. So much so that you actually think the salt water will satisfy you. That it will give you what you want, what you need, but it, it only makes you thirstier. And in the end, it, it will kill you. But if this is what we hunger for, I mean, why are they happiest? It's because they'll actually be satisfied. They, they hunger for the one thing that can actually bring satisfaction to our lives. Happiest are those who crave what actually satisfies. I mean, what would that be like for a change? Then we have the merciful. So that's the, the wronged but forgiving anyway. Not the judgmental or the self-righteous or the bitter grudge holders. We all know how miserable they are, right? It's the merciful. For they know how much they need mercy. And they know that they will indeed re- receive mercy. And so how can, they not, how can they not pass along mercy to others? Forgiven people forgive. It's just it's what we do. It's, it's who we are. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The reality is, some of us, the reason some of us are miserable is because we just keep holding on to the pain, the hurt that's been inflicted upon us. I'm not minimizing that. And yet the happy life is the forgiving life. Three more. Hang in there. The pure in heart. Now, what I think is interesting about the pure in heart is you'd almost expect Jesus to say, it's like, it's that happy are those who do everything right. Right, who have, you know, keep all the rules and, and all that. But the reality is that's just not enough. It's not enough for God. It's not enough for Jesus. God doesn't merely want right action. He wants right hearts. And the pure in heart loves what God loves. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. Which only makes sense for God is pure. And for those who actually want to see him, encounter him, know him, experience him fully, it takes purity to do so. The happiest life doesn't just do the right things, but loves the right things. Which is way harder, right? Way harder. Next, the peacemakers, the shalom seekers. It's, it's those who quiet conflict and, and build reconciliation. Even just think about that. Like how many people in your life, maybe in your own circumstances or those around you closely connected, are just in relationship shambles or, or near shambles? Or maybe, maybe take it broader. Like think about the, the incredibly angry and polarizing world in which we live. It's not the opinionated It's not the hate-filled or the loud and obnoxious. It's not the incendiary talk show hosts that for some reason we keep drawn to like moth to a flame, right? It's not not them that are are happiest. It's not not the angry, continual posting their madness on Facebook people, right? We know they're not happy, so, you know, knock it off, right? It's it's the peacemaker. It's those who make peace. The peace, shalom, it's not just the absence of conflict. It's the restoration of what ought to be. Peacemakers don't just quiet the storm, but they seek to make things right in a world so wrong, to bring, to bring shalom to the forgotten, the poor, the oppressed. I even think about our, our upcoming, just a couple weeks, we have our annual Inspire Freedom celebration. It's something that we do at our downtown campus every, 
every year, and particularly around this time of year, right, with Martin Luther King Day here and, and um, all that's, that's ahead with, with February and Black History Month and those kinds of things, it's, it's a chance that we can part, small way, right, partner with our African-American brothers and sisters pursuing shalom together where there is often missing shalom, right, missing peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Of course they will. This is what God does. This is like his specialty. He is the ultimate peacemaker. And those who are his sons and daughters do what God does. They join him in his work. No one's happier than shalom seekers. Then we get the persecuted. This is the longest one probably noticed that. Spends more time on this than any of them. It's also the one that interestingly reveals, even this early on in Jesus' life and ministry, that he knows exactly where all this is going, both for him and for those who take him seriously. And it's, it's not going to someplace good, if you're wondering, right? For any of us. I mean, all, with, with this broken world in which we live. Look, look what he says. Because the others... The other statements, I can at least, like, if I look hard enough, I can see some goodness in them, but this, this is the hardest one for me to get my mind around. Happiest are the rejected, the marginalized, the laughed at, the mocked, right? Happiest, happiest are the imprisoned, the tortured, the murdered. Them, really? Because for us, it's happier are the comfortable, I, I build my life around happy are the safe, right? Happy are the well-liked and easily loved. Blessed are the persecuted. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Woo! For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, this may be the hardest one for me to get my mind around. I also think it's key to understanding everything that Jesus is doing with these. I mean, even did you notice the way he bookends it, right? Uh, The poor in spirit, that was the first one. They will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And now it's the persecuted who, again, who also inherit the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is is showing us this, this is the key one. Key to understand what Jesus means by this this happy, upside-down life, because ultimately the happiest life, the the happiest life is the life that's no longer obsessed with this life, who has has a bigger imagination for what God is doing, who who isn't held down by, by simply what we see around us and knows that there is a better one coming, a better kingdom. I mean, the only way any of this makes sense is if we believe that, yes, Jesus' kingdom breaks in now, it is available now, and yet it extends forever. And so what is 80 years of persecution or poverty or pain or grief or sacrifice? It's only a moment, people. Ours is the kingdom of heaven. Because the happiest life, the happiest life is the one that never ends. Okay, deep breath. There's a lot here, all right? 
It's time to process, time to even get our minds on. If you're anything like me, like you're just sort of, your mind is kind of scrambling. Like where do, where do I even pick up? What's, what do I got to do? How am I, how am I going to actually do this? And, and if you're anything like me, you're also feeling deeply inadequate because you know that you're just a loser when it comes to these things, right? And we're so privileged. We gravitate in so many other ways. Well, you're not alone. And so let, let me conclude with three quick takeaways. Things, things that strike me as I, as I think about what Jesus is getting at for all of us as we, as we long to, to figure out how do we actually live this kind of life, this, embrace this kind of happiness and put it together. Three things. First, first, we have to give up trying to define happiness on our own. It's not working. And Jesus' definition is the opposite of everything that we run run after, right? And we spend our lives chasing happiness, but we never quite seem to catch it. I mean, seriously, I, I really do think, like, anymore, like, the, that is, that's like the last ideal, the last sort of value that our culture has held on to, is you've, you've just got to do whatever it takes to make yourself happy. I mean, some of you, like, sitting here, you're like, like, we shouldn't, right? I mean, it's that ingrained in us. It's the only thing left that we, that we hold on to. Just, just do whatever it takes to be happy. But if you look around, look around. We're more miserable, angry, anxious, lonely, and depressed as a people than we have ever been. It's not working. Stop letting your friends tell you what's going to make you happy. You're not going to find it on the internet or on TV or at the mall. It's not going to happen. I'm convinced anymore. I don't even know for myself what what is actually going to do it. It's time to, to stop running after these shallow definitions of the good life that we actually think is going to fill us up. It's time to let him tell me what's going to make me happy. And just go with that for a while because the other's not working. Second, second, want more out of life, not less. Which might sound a little ridiculous, like if you're listening to this sermon, like almost as if the application should be we all just have to lower expectations into the pits and expect life to just be terrible and miserable, Right? And then, and then we'll finally be, be okay, but nothing could be further from the truth. That's not what Jesus is getting at here, right? Just expect this life to be terrible, and finally you'll get to heaven, and it'll, it'll all be okay. That's, that's not it at all. Our problem, my problem, isn't that I want too much. It's that I'm satisfied with so little. I mean, think about it. We actually think, you and I, right? Everyone, we actually think stuff like money and sex and approval and friendship and beauty and popularity and stuff and, and jobs, we actually think it's going to satisfy us. Like how many, how, how long have you been trying that, right? I've been trying for 36 years. It hasn't worked yet, but I still believe it. And I still keep chasing the same stupid stuff. Anybody else, right? When, what Jesus offers, I mean, I, we think that's going to satisfy him. What Jesus is offering us is an entire kingdom where everything is made right, including me. Where, where my desires won't just be fulfilled, but made whole. Meaning I'll actually want the right things in the right ways, right? In the right orders. And that there's a joy that we can't even imagine that lasts, that lasts forever, that begins now. And when we embrace this happiness, this definition, we get a taste of it even, even now. C.S. Lewis, he summarizes this so beautifully. Some of you probably have heard this before. Uh, he writes, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. 
We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he just cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's me. First, stop defining it for yourself. It's not working. Want more? Actually want more out of life, not less. And then finally, finally, follow the lead of the happiest person. Have you ever thought about this? According to this definition, Jesus is the happiest person who ever lived. We don't think of him as happy, do we? He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, right? He he endured incredible sacrifice, suffering on our behalf. I'm not not minimizing any of that. And yet, according to this definition, Jesus lived every one of these to the T. He lived the good life, the best life, the the only human to ever live without the taint and the continual draw of sin and disordered loves. He actually did it, even even to the point of death on a cross. Because here's the deal, people. I know me. I know us. On our own, every one of us is going to walk out of here this morning, and like three seconds later, we're going to go back to pursuing the same old junk. We're going to keep chasing after those itty-bitty, minuscule definitions of joy and happiness, and we're going to give our lives to them. On our own, that's, that's what we're going to do. But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, taking our place, suffering for all of our shame, dying for our forgiveness. But he didn't stay dead, and neither shall we. That we will live. And he rose again so that we can actually embrace this life and begin to embrace it and taste it even now. We don't don't just have to wait for it, that it can happen for us. This, this, This radical, this unusual, this counterintuitive happiness. It's completely upside down. And it begins both now and forever. And we can trust that in the end with him, his way really is, who knew, better. People blessed are those who put their trust in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you break into my heart and to ours? God, would you help me to believe deep down what you have said? So much so that that we actually give up things we love for you who we love even more. So that we're willing to, to, to sacrifice, to change, God, to pursue what you what you love. God, would you change our hearts, change our loves, and forgive us for our many failures. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you paid the penalty for us, that you gave your life so that we not only could be, be forgiven for our incessant failures, but so that we could begin this change, that you could begin it in us even now. And you promised to bring us to completion to fulfill all of these desires. And so for that, Lord Jesus, we worship you. We we trust in you. Amen.